What is up, Asymmetry? Hey, hi, how you doing? Coming back at you with Dan Robinson part two, and it felt necessary to divide this conversation just based on, you know, the degree to which Dan dives into different subject matter. And in this second part, we kind of look at the historical factors, his history, uh, you know, personalities that Dan knew over the course of time that have contributed to our bonsai community, his thoughts regarding his style and approach versus that of the traditional form. Really interesting to kind of take the more historical perspective out of this second point of conversation and appreciate the fact that these verbal tellings and documentation are kind of all we have as our real historical book of knowledge around the people that have contributed and accumulated their influences on the bonsai community and paved the way for where we are today. Really fascinating uh, to get to share this with Dan and hear a lot of his renditions and thoughts and uh, hopefully you enjoy. When I look at your carving, I see the Pacific Northwest, but I want to ask you, is there a landscape that inspires you more than another as far as, you know, the, the, the natural environment being out in it and taking that influence into your bonsai practice? Or like, are there images that echo in your mind more strongly than others? Yeah, I think probably, <laughs> I know it's strange, but uh, I love to um, drive and look at dead tops on trees. Mm-hmm. You pointed them out as we were on our way here. I know we it. saw we we, yeah, we, we three got or them. Four ancient cedars, and they're not particularly dramatic compared to what I've seen. But right. the old candelabra type cedar thing that you saw on the coastal cedars, that giant stump that's in my landscape down right. there, yeah, with the stalactites in front of it. Yep. And uh, and that would have been one of those uh, cathedral type tops. Multiple dead tops, all of them progressively dying down as the roots get longer mm-hmm. <laughs> to the low branches, which then would be the last ones alive. Yeah. And um, I know when I go up in Vancouver Island driving through areas where there's old growth, my eyes are just out there, um, you know, not looking at points, but looking at the dead tops and seeing how that naturally has occurred and what a story it tells mm-hmm. and why that's such a fascination for me. But you see my smaller pieces of dead wood all around that are yeah. gnarly, which I always tell people, you got to collect these and have them on your workbench when you're carving. So you know what to make it look like. Right. Because you can't pull it out of here without having seen that. Again, that's the connection with your eyes and your brain, the memory banks of interesting things to reduplicate, Mm -hmm. to impose. Mm -hmm. Like I said, when a branch dies on a tree, it's, oh, it's opportunity. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. As long as it's still alive. Of course, if it breaks in the middle of the trunk and it's down, well, it's a neat snag. Save that. (laughs) Would you consider yourself somebody who doesn't seek to have control? Or would you consider yourself somebody that feeds, that, that thrives on having some control? Ooh, boy, modicums of control. Well, I certainly am controlled when it comes to the care of them. Mm -hmm. The dedication to every other day watering. I mean, it's all about the water. Mm -hmm. 
That's what, if you're trying to grow bonsai, you gotta learn how to water. Now, it's interesting that it takes two or three years to learn how to water in Japan. I can teach somebody in about half an hour, you know. But that's having the right kind of soil and all these ingredients in the mix so that it's gonna work. I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I have no idea what they could teach somebody over several years how to water, but maybe each tree has a different formula in there. And so it doesn't take quite as much to me. I just flood it enough until it comes out the bottom of the pot and okay. Mm -hmm. Then they're, then I'm gonna have air spaces and they're gonna have humidity and, and we're, you know. But um, the control of other, things I don't I'm I'm fairly laissez-faire about letting people come in and prune on things so the bad pruning that was done I can get rid of that and everything's going to be fine because enough of it's there and there's plenty of tree and it's all about the trunk mm -hmm. so this peripheral stuff is quite often the enemy all this little stuff is in the way yeah it's like that snag that I stand up that juniper snag right on the rock when you walk out right the when door. you walk out the, yeah mm -hmm. that's that's what it's all about the structure and the branch pattern not the foliage or its abundance and abundance is the enemy mm. if it's hiding the real value which is all of this kind of stuff so i have uh, people come in and help me and i'll turn them loose on and pines and then I'll come back and, oh, well, you shouldn't have taken that off, but it's okay. I, it's going to grow. I'm, there's another thing here. So, you know, it's just that I'm I marvel. So, I, I, I marvel at your willingness. I, I'm <laughs> to just so. Uh, that. <laughs> I, I've got such abundance. Yeah. yeah. That it's easy yeah. to be generous. I mean, if you had one goddamn tree, well, that's another thing uh, but you have such a vision that's what doesn't make sense to me is you have such a a, a vision of what you're I mean did you have a clear vision of a land and gardens or did that also obviously a garden no. evolves but it like did all you, spontaneous spontaneous complete improvisation yeah, and whole, do you feel bonsai is that the mother of creativity is spontaneity mm. that's that rules me more than anything and so the plan is the enemy. If you're building a house, you're dealing with dimensional lumber, okay, I guess you gotta have a plan. Yeah, right. But it's like my entryway in there. Yeah. I just kind of decided right in the midst of things, shit, I'm gonna put some big rocks in here and make this bigger and just do things that way. And um, it's always exciting. Yeah. And, and so, allowing people to work on some great tree with a kind of a, well, you know, you take it back to the first set of needles. And <laughs> yeah. I get a whole gang of people in here on uh, the end of June from Puget Sound and I turn them loose on the pines. They come on, let's get all these decandled or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Because at that point it is a candle. Yeah. You know, and, um, that always works, and then there's always some things that, well, I don't know, probably wouldn't take that off, but it'll grow. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got stuff in the ground. I've got stuff everywhere to do. Yeah. And I realize my limitation in terms of being able to um, get done with all of it because it all grows too much here. Mm -hmm. And so I just enjoy having the help. Yeah. 
even though it may be, uh, I've got this gal, Nikki, who, who lives in Williams' big building up there by where that big juniper is. Not juniper, but uh, azalea. Okay. That big building. Sure. She's, she's a homeless gal, and she lives there, and so she kind of guards things, and she works with me on stuff, and she's just a fanatic about picking every little tiny weed. And I said, just, just put bark over it, you know. <laughs> we'll spray it with Roundup, and yeah. we'll take care of it. But she, Wants it to be so, so. I, I enjoy her, her her assiduousness, her dedication, but it's just kind of unproductive. Come on, let's get done with this thing. Yeah. I'm out of here. So, um, but I I just uh, enjoy all of it. Yeah, and it and it's to me. I see about uh, six years, five years ago, I had this heart attack. And I was on my way to a pruning job, and I stopped in down there at the garden, and I ran into the store to get my rain gear, and I was coming out to my truck, and I got dizzy, and I leaned up against one of William's big rocks, and I fainted. And then I woke up after a while. I have no idea, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be late. So I went out in the truck and then drove over to Tacoma, and going across the Narrows Bridge, I started to perspire. And I thought, well, this must be something more than what it appeared. Dehydration. So I yeah. called everybody and went back to the hospital and drove in and don't remember anything else for two days. And and they sent me home the day after that. And Holy shit. Said, well, you had a, a dam, a calcium dam on one of your coronary arteries. You don't have any heart disease. You don't have any plaque, but you've got calcium somehow built up on that coronary artery in there. And dammed it off so we had to open you up and drill it away and and then we macerated the artery a little bit so it was bleeding out and so we took an artery out of your leg and plugged it in and you can go home now and so well okay so so i've been then i was in the hands of the doctors and so they decided well let's put a stint in your dorsal aorta that's the one coming out of the top of the heart if it was bigger and more generous, maybe you'd be more productive. So I said, okay. So they put one of those in there. And then after a while they said, well, we're detecting a little bit of fibrillation on your heart here. So let's give you an alblasia treatment, which is a cauterizing of the electrics around your heart and to not let it fibrillate. And so, okay. You know, so, you know, as an enthusiast for medical stuff, I'm, I'm there. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I get another shot? Yeah, give me one, right? I want to live. Mm -hmm. So I went through all this stuff, and then uh, about three months ago, I went in and they said, "Well, you're, we can't do anything else for you. Just do whatever you want. You can run or do so." We fixed you. Yeah, we fixed you. We you're, did everything you're we could. You're good as new. You're good as new. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just, you know, we got rid of the dam. So, it, and that just kind of set me into a thing where, okay, you don't go on forever. Yeah. And I always thought that I was going to, I remember years ago thinking that I'm, I'm good for about 150 years. Of, that's going to give me, at that time, it was going to give me 120 years of bonsai care on these trees. Mm -hmm. And they were going to be fabulous after that much time. Yeah. And uh, so lately, I've been thinking, well, maybe, maybe 70 years. 
because <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah, at 65 yeah. now on some of them. <laughs> Maybe that'll. You've got a few more decades. I could go. In you. I could go. you got a few Either more decades way, in you. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyhow, it hadn't really altered anything. I'm still a, as zealous as ever, but I don't do as many push-ups, and it's hard for me to do a chin-up. And when I was a fireman, I did 18 of them. <laughs> and so, I'm, but I can prune all day long and yeah. not get tired and I can do my normal stuff and I don't have the cardiovascular exercise I should have, but I'm able to perform all day long and so really it's good enough. So I'm not driven to achieve that kind of excellence that might be a harbinger of a much longer life, yeah. but it's argumentative at this age. I mean, I just learned the other day that I don't have to take baby aspirin anymore. Oh because they decided that baby aspirin over your, if you're over 65, you don't need to take it. So huh? the medical world keeps evolving. They learn more <laughs> every day, don't yeah. they? <laughs> okay, so let's see. So pretty soon they're gonna bring back margarine. Okay, yeah, back right. to the margarine. Yeah, right. the, Country crop. There was a little deal in there that you would break to mix in with the margarine to make it look like butter. I mean, this was back in 53. Oh God, when that's hardcore. That's, that's <laughs> terrible. Processed foods. Yeah. That's when processed foods started changing the way things work. You, now, would you say that bonsai has kept you young, or bonsai landscaping, I your think, your chosen yeah, yeah. your chosen uh, lifestyle has I kept you? I honestly think that one of the the things that has led to my really good health, except for this incident, is the proximity to pure oxygen. Because mm -hmm. I'm quite often I'm right here. And I live here. Yeah. No, and this so is this is tough. It doesn't to get any better right than this here. because in between us and five thousand miles of ocean till you get to China with whatever they're putting in the air, there's nothing in the way. There used to be the mills down in Aberdeen that would I mean I've got lichen growing here. See that stuff hanging from the tree? That's yeah. called the old man's beard. And it's very sensitive to uh to pollution. Mm -hmm. And this, you find this down on the coast, and it can get to be 30 inches long. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's hanging from the trees here, and so we're blessed with that. But also, I'm really close to these guys, and it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. Because I always think about the poor guy living in the basement in New York City. And the closest tree is in Central Park, and it's 10 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> and how many other people have you? And so one of the... Well, the startling thing in a way with modern TV is how it's endlessly full of ads for your health. Yeah. I remember early on there, there wasn't anything about your health on TV, you know. There was maybe something to clean your nose out if you had a cold, you know. Sure. Privine. Take right. Privine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Relieve your runny nose. But now there's all these cures for what ails you. And so apparently the country is full of ailments. And um, of course, the COVID thing is that whole thing. So, but um, I just feel great and, and uh, do what I do and eat lots of fruit and lots of dates and figs and nuts and bananas and grapes. Yeah. Although I, like just take grapes, little, huh? I just take little pieces of grapes now and. It's kind of a dinky little tree. So you don't you don't go for the not for the full the OGs the whole swag. I mean, I remember the Thompson seedless grapes when they came in. I mean, 
life for me has been things that I used to love and enjoy and they're no longer available. Has that, that's gotta be, does that make you sad? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, um, Fairchild tangerines. When I was a kid, they filled my stocking with them at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And they were full of seeds, but God, they tasted good. I used to get tangerines in my and stocking. And you can't too. even get them That's anymore. Great. Now you've got these satsumas that don't have half the flavor and there's no seeds in there. If there aren't any seeds, where's the nutrition? Yeah. I mean, look at the grapes. They're all seedless grapes. Yeah. And I, I used to love the Concord, not the Concord, but the Emperor grapes that would come before Christmas, uh, probably the first end of middle of November, and they'd run through all the way through February. And these big grapes, five or six seeds in there. I remember as a kid picking them out. Then after a while, I just started crunching them up. Yeah. And grape seed is, a, you know, a great nutritional thing. Right. And now the only grapes we have don't have any seeds anymore. Sure. Sure. That's so modern man has done great things and nutritionally for us. <laughs> Endless variety, but just flavor, no nutrition in there. So anyhow, do you, but I get lots of nutrition. I mean, we're all loaded with it compared to what we had historically. Well, that's what I was going to say. We just had potatoes to eat. But I was going to say, do you think things are getting better or things are getting worse? Nutritionally? No, nah, just, just things, you know? I mean, well, in general, think, the whole kit and caboodle think, of... I think everything, uh, you know, it's really desperate. I shouldn't get into it, but I just think it's terrible what's going on. Mm -hmm. The environmental thing is just yeah. a, a huge human tragedy. And going back to, you, you've been talking about thriving more, potentially doing better as an individual kind yeah. of on your own. Well, and getting people involved in it. Right. I and mean, this has been, what I love is to deal with people and get them enthused about this art where they can grow their own oxygen. Right, <laughs> at, right. At least. Yeah. But do you, do you view your relationship with the tree as a collaboration? Like, how, how does where does the tree, when you are when you are making these decisions and you're engaging with the tree in this fashion, you know, where does the tree, where do you connect with the tree, or how does that work for you, in the in the general broad scheme and theme of? I don't um, I don't consider it. I just think about how I can impose. Sounds really self-centered, but that's the business. How I can impose on this tree a, a different character than it is manifesting now. Mm. And coincident with that, make it look more interesting for humans who might gaze upon it. I don't, the tree, I don't think the tree really knows the difference as long as it gets the proper nurturing. Mm -hmm. And the proper nurturing from my standpoint is a life of uh, semi-desperation. Because the ones that live the longest are the ones that have been abused the most. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting. what makes it fallacious, I think, to follow a Japanese notion that we want these trees to be on the juvenile side because it guarantees long life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of battle with that because the logic is there. 
all right, useful energy. It's healthy, right. it's vigorous, it's strong. And then you go out and fight. run, and then yeah. you die of a heart attack. Right. And so, and then I think about those bristle cones, or the trees on the precipice, or the ancient redwoods, and, yeah. and the struggle to stay oh, oh, up in the air, or get the water, and they hang in there. And so when I'm imposing my value on the tree, it's, it's superficial mm -hmm. compared to the lifeline, if I do it right, mm -hmm. you know? Keep the water flowing. You can take the whole inside out and enjoy that hmm. concavity and that look, and the tree doesn't know you were there. And so that's kind of an art or a technique. You know, good technique is going to deliver that. Kimura did that with the, the reducing the lifeline down to that skinny little thing so, so he could fold it up and shorten yeah. the trunk. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 Masterful stuff. Yeah. And what was always interesting to me, and the only reference I have to it, is how much. How many years of sapwood do you have to leave on a tree to get the water flow sufficient? Well, the only thing I can say is that there's one tree that we know of that gets along with three years worth of sapwood and all the rest reverts to heartwood, and it's the, the laburnum. Hmm. So I tell people, well, all you got to do is leave three years because <laughs> it works for the laburnum. There you go. But the problem is, how much sapwood is there that you can remove? How many years? When does it stop flowing and get clogged up and yeah. still look like sapwood? I mean, you cut through a maple tree, you can't tell where heartwood is or sapwood or anything else. Well, how much, you know, like when I'm going to carve on that beach down there to, yeah. to protect that smooth bark, you know? Mm -hmm. How much sapwood do I have to leave under there to, well, anyhow, I don't think anybody knows. I don't think, I don't think that there is a, uh, no. I don't think there is a physiological determination on that. I mean, I think this is like the great mystery of bonsai and where bonsai potentially has the power to contribute greatly to our understanding of trees. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we more intimately handle trees in this, yeah. in this uh, endeavor than any other, any other Oh yeah. Aspect of horticulture, botany, or yeah. or, or or dendrology. To, years, to the best of my knowledge, hundreds of years of of this tutelage and handling the intimate internal structure of the tree. Yeah. That's a that's a bonsai a, 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 an aspect of bonsai that is unique. Yeah. I've got a a great thing to show you down there. It's a Lasky yellow cedar that um, I collected out of a kind of a a flowing little stream kind of a thing. And it was uh, rooted way down below the stream because it's a bog and bogs accrete and gradually bury the trunk. And so the part that was down under was fine because it was in the water sure. all the time. And Preserved, so it didn't decay. Yeah. And then here's this part that was up floating on the water and all of the, uh, the woody part was gone mm -hmm. down to just these ribbons of bark with Interesting. the right amount of sapwood and right. cambium and foliage. And so I put it in the pot and it just drapes down over the the pot. And all, the uh, trunk? The, the, the whole thing kind of folded over? Well, the whole trunk is just kind of gone because I cut that 
bottom part off because mm -hmm. it was down way down under and so i gotcha. brought this part where there were roots and and now that tr trunk has just dilapidated uh -huh. what was left and i honestly think that when uh uh you know the the whole idea of log storage underwater is fine in fresh water because there just aren't the bugs to eat it and it'll last forever but i think if you pull that log out and put it on the dry land that it dilapidates very quickly with the wet and dry. Right. If you cut it into lumber and use it inside the house, well, okay, it isn't wet and dry anymore. Cause yeah. I, I collected a log out of Mission Lake, which is just past where you're staying up there. And a guy had, the roots were on the, so the tree had fallen into the lake, however long ago it was. The roots were up in the air cause they were kind of dry. And he pulled this thing out and called me and said, I've just pulled this log out of the lake and it's a really neat looking old thing. You want that for your garden? Said, oh yeah, great. Picked it up, but used it in the landscape and it's totally gone. Hmm. Except the roots. Uh. So the roots never were submerged in the lake. The log was. Mm -hmm. And so it was redesigned. However, that could, whatever that means. Yeah. And then I pulled it out and put it on the ground and then it was wet and dry, wet and dry, and it is just gone. Yeah. Where you were looking at that little um, spruce, mm -hmm. there was a log once behind it. Is this a big round of old growth cedar? Uh -huh. And in 30 years, it is just flat out gone. There's just kind of a bump in the bank because Kinnikinnik is kind of growing. And yet here's these roots down here at this end. Interesting. And so this thing was floating in the water so it was even the upper part was kind of wet and dry wet and dry and so it completely rotted away leaving just the the ribbons of structure the trunk had come out of the ground the part down here was constantly wet so it's it was okay but i, I cut it off but i've got a chunk of that and then this but this part here just all gone mm -hmm. And, and it's in my book mm -hmm. as this kind of neat looking thing with this trunk sure. and it's just gone <laughs> interesting after you know 20 25 years or something so uh, you know ain't nature grand you know yeah. figuring out how what a, what a all mystery all these things go on and yet the tree survives fine with just this ribbon and so in a way the whole idea of taking a tree that's round and cutting through it and unfolding it should work. Technically. <laughs> Technically. As long as you've got the water and the bark and you've the got stuff enough. And you just, you've got enough of the water, yeah. right? Which yeah. nobody knows how much that is. Well, that's right. And um, so there's just a whole myriad of things that are kind of fascinating to mull over and conjure on and, and uh, but the day-to-day -day thing of just uh, watching things evolve under your tutelage is fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I've watched that for 60 years with these, all the pines that I grew from the seed that I collected in the mountains of Korea yeah. way back. And now I've got some with trunks this big and uh, some landscape ones that are this big. And, and it's just- That's gotta be so rewarding. I was trying a, to think about that. It's just a thrill. I was thinking I about mean, that today as we were looking at those landscape pieces and the trees that, 
you know, the ones that were growing in the ground by the hemlock waterfall where you're saying, yeah, these are about 10 years. I thought about taking them out. And here's the ones I took out two years ago and they were on the bench yeah. where you're going to build the pond. Yeah. And I was just thinking, God, what a, you know, I get, I get a lot of pleasure out of, uh, I, I've been building my garden for 12 years. I get so much mm -hmm. pleasure out of 12 years. But when you say, you know, I've been working on some of these for 65 years, it's just like, man, <laughs> If I'm excited after 12 years, yeah. but I also think like, you know, I asked you before we started, do you still love bonsai? And you say, oh yeah, I love it now more than ever. Yeah. And, and I also, you know, would follow that up with asking like, you know, are there things that you still aspire to accomplish or do, or is it not about that anymore? Is it just about the act of continuing what you've been doing like what does that look like at this stage of your career because mm -hmm. you really obviously had a stage of your career where you were making statements through your work and you mm -hmm. were and you were and you were you were opening people's minds to another way to per, to, to yeah. potentially view the intention of this entire endeavor where are you at now yeah well I still um, cherish that opportunity. I loved going back there and talking to these guys about the trees around them and why they look like they look, why they're all young trees. And you can tell because they all are still pointing up towards the sky. Right. I mean, as, as fundamental as that is, it's eye opening to people because they just, you don't ever hear any of this stuff anywhere. It doesn't exist in no. a book. It doesn't no, exist in they a book. Don't, you know, they, they don't teach anything in school anymore except computers. Right. And I don't know what's on the computers because I don't do computers. So I'm, you know, I've never seen your shows, what you're doing, which obviously is eminently successful. There's a lot of people that do do that. I just, I don't know. I'm just not, you know, I don't spend time doing that. I, I'm I, envious of your cell phone. Yeah. It's kind of. I crazy. am. I am super it, envious it of it. Sometimes, and I answer it, and then I'll make a call. Success to me is no longer having a cell phone. Well, it's it's a, such a fabulous tool, but it's the enemy because it makes you dumb. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at all these people that don't know their address and don't know a phone number, can't can't deal with a map. And I said, uh, huh? <laughs> What's the deal? Yeah. Um, I mean, it works great as long as you still have electricity. Sure. But if we don't have electricity, I'm sorry. Yeah. But that 50% of the population is is out of here. <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I think that's being generous. A, a, sol a solar flare would change things for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, boy. Anyhow, um, I just am still thrilled with the prospect of working on a tree. I've got all these ones like I was pointing out, you know, I really anxious to get that guy worked on but ah, I'm working on this guy or I'm putting this one in the rock and it's kind of you know it's preemptory just because it's the timing you got to get it done yeah. at a certain time and I'd love to hollow out that beech tree now but now the leaves are out and I'm thinking well I'm gonna shower them with this these chips and it sticks to them mm -hmm. and then you try to wipe them in the tender and you're gonna knock them all off and that's right. a little more pruning than you suggested you know just take a, you know, cut them in half, maybe two thirds. Right. Anyhow, so delays are built into this art form, but having such an abundance of things, 
Now, I just spent an hour pruning on this one that I had planted in a rock four years ago and I hadn't pruned it. It was a pine. And uh, it seems to be quite happy in this rock, except that it doesn't produce any needles longer than this, even without pruning. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, but it's starting to get bushy. And some extensions on there that are linear, and you know, linear is the enemy, right? Yeah, that's good. You know, you got to have gnarly. So let's take that down to here or cut down to the last leaves because it's a black pine and mm. maybe that'll work, but it's not too critical because I could lose that and I've still got all right. of this. And I just love working through the older trees. People ask, well, what's your favorite tree? And it says, the one I'm working on. Sure. Because I'm revisiting this thing that I grew from seed and did this and this and this and had it in this guy's yard for a few years and finally here it is now growing in a rock. And um, it's just endlessly energizing and exciting to me. Yeah. And it kind of drives my wife nuts because there's, there's very little out there that does as any kind of allure yeah. for me. Now, I, I'm anxiously waiting for the opportunity to return to the gem show in Tucson. Mm which we haven't gone to for two or three years. And it always was a favorite thing because I get to drive through California. I get to drive through the <laughs> Siskiyous. I get to maybe come back through the Redwoods. I get mm -hmm. to visit all these things that are fabulous. I get to go past, um, what the hell is it, south of Sacramento, um, uh, Gnarly Vineyards. That big sign along sure. the road. Sure. You know yeah. Yes, I do. And, and there and they exactly are. Exactly what you're I'm looking about. at those Zinfandel grapes. Zinfandel, out old vine zen, yeah. All old gnarly things. Yeah. And I'd rather take old 99 in spite of its delays than I 5 because I get to drive I, down I hear you. down that way and I hear you. And go to, and I want to go to the gem shows so maybe I can find another. I found a vendor down there years ago and bought several uh, interesting stalactites. Well, these are sitting at, these so are sitting in the garden. So I've got this thing for stalactites. Yeah. I've got one behind you there. And, and, and explain that to me. Why is there a crystalline form in the middle of that stalactite? Now that's from, I got that in the Philippines, mm -hmm. but it was broken like that. And I thought, why is there a crystal in the middle of a stalactite? I don't get it. It's yeah. a sedimentary, goddammit. So why would there be that? Do you know? No. Oh, this is the mystery. Yeah, that's why I'm asking you. You're a learned kind of guy. You know what? You know, I decided early on, although I have many interests, I wanted to be a master of one. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. You can disagree with me. Well, but not that one. Just all those other things that you haven't pursued. Yeah, but you're more diversified than that. You've I'm going presentation. I mean, I'm, I, I, know, try, just, I try to be. Yeah. I, I try to be. I think. I think it's very. One thing that I learned from Mr. Kimura, you know, when he was young in his career, he had muscle cars. He liked Italian fashion. He loved the Beatles. Wow. He made his own guitars. Yeah. He, yeah, but but it got neck down. It got neck down because the. The more and more he focused on bonsai when he was a young professional, you know, he didn't have a huge garden. He didn't have, uh, you know, dozens of apprentices. He didn't, you know, that built, that, that built as he okay. had success in the economic model of the Japanese bonsai world in the bubble period post-World War II. 
and I don't know, you know, like, yeah, I asked him one time as an apprentice, you know, are you happy with that or do you regret it? You know, and he just said, you know, it, he said something to the effect of it, it, it is what it is. You know, and I, I never really understood if he was, he, he loved bonsai. That was the thing about Mr. Kimura. Mm -hmm. He's not like other bonsai professionals in Japan where once they have a garden and apprentices, they stop working on bonsai and their apprentices do all the work. Mm -hmm. Mr. Kimura was there. Always doing it. Always doing it, every yeah. day. And I thought that was really, that, that just, that this ga just gave impressive. me. impressive, yeah. That's why he is who he is. Um, but I'd always got the feeling that he didn't have regrets, and I appreciated that too. You know, so not having muscle cars anymore and having yeah. a practical car and not playing guitar and trying to be a beetle, but focusing on doing bonsai to the best of his ability, that appealed to me. That's why I went to study with him because, um, you know, I'm interested in geology. I love rock. I love yeah. rock. I don't know if I love rock as much as you love rock, but I would say very close if, yeah. it, you know, and, uh, and I love trees and I love the understory plants and I love the landscapes of, of the world, particularly North America, I think is absolutely special yeah. and unique on a level that the rest of the world uh, doesn't we'll seem to have. Yeah. 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 But, but, but I, you know, this miniaturized, this medium of the miniaturized tree contextually representing all of the things that exist within our relationship in the landscape that that is the singularity that uh that fascinates me most mm -hmm. it, and i think it is obviously so diversified because it starts to take you into all of the tangential offshoots of that but but it always comes back to the same thing for me you yeah. know this this, this this is what binds me to you and mm -hmm. to other people that i otherwise wouldn't have a knowledge of exposure mm. to or a, a, a manner in which we open a conversation. And I find that to be really interesting, yeah. you know? Yeah, it is. So for, for the crystal and the stalactite, I too would be like, well, that's interesting, huh. but I don't have an answer for you. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, so I had always suffered from the, um, maybe a delusion or illusion that Kimura came, had a father who was had access to a major industrial facility mm -hmm. and that delivered to him high pressure air mm. which he used to carve on a few trees where we're talking maybe 60,000 pounds on a thing mm -hmm. that would just erode the wood away leaving the knot because mm -hmm. he's I remember seeing one of his trees in one of his books that I looked at that and said, that's the only way you could do that. Yeah. To leave those little hard knots. And it just, and I, I just dreamed of this, having this thing and just. Mm -hmm. And, and I, somehow I, I had heard or something that his father was a major industrialist that had some kind of a plant that might have that kind of a compressor that he somehow had access to. And so that he came from some semblance of loot. Um, and any, any help with that? Or is that yeah, all well, dreaming I'll, from Dan Robinson? Well, I think, I think that I have to be very careful because I don't know that anybody actually knows the truth about Mr. Kimura's background. But mm -hmm. here is what I know. His father died when he was, I believe, nine years old. Wow. Okay. And there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different 
hypotheses hi, hi, hypotheses yeah. about what happened to his father. Mm, okay. I don't know what's true. Yeah, I'll let the mind ramble. Well, right. his fa his father was a phenomenal inventor. Oh. Who created one of the original models of the microphone, which is in the microphone museum. Hmm. Uh, he also created the original direct drive turntable for record wow. players. Yeah. And uh, and it is, it has been said by Mr. Kimura that his father invented the original timing mechanism that allowed the gun to shoot between the propellers of warplanes. Wow. And, uh, and I think that invention potentially led to his father's demise. And I don't know how, but yeah. that's what I've, that's the, wow. the way that I've heard it. And I think that that's fairly, probably fairly accurate. Wow. So Mr. Kimura from nine until 16, when he lost his father, he had three sisters and his mother, uh, was the sole, I think, money earner in the family oh, a, a, okay. a, as a paper route. Wow. And when he was 16... Sounds familiar. I had those two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and so at 16... The Wisconsin State Journal when I lived oh, in really? Wisconsin. Oh, God, that sounds cold. <laughs> it was. Because sounds... I'd moved there from, from the San Fernando Valley. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, and then 16, he started his apprenticeship. Uh, so, Mr. Kimura... Okay. Okay. did uh, have massive air compressors that would uh, sandblast trees, okay. but he used a very special blasting medium to accomplish the aesthetic that okay. he was able to elicit in the wood of the trees. And actually, when I was the apprentice there, I never saw him use his blasting cabinet. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I saw all of the equipment. I saw these massive yeah. uh, compressors and whatnot never once saw them turned on. And he had said to me early in my apprenticeship, he said, listen, if you can turn, and he had all of these samples of wood mm -hmm. where the base of it would be how it started and then and the then tip of it would be the, pro the product the after sampling. And he said, if you can do this to any tree, you devalue the trees that have the most value. And so he pulled back and he stopped doing it. And, he, and I actually helped him dismantle his entire blasting cabinet when wow. I was an apprentice. Wow. Uh, everybody else had, had quit. I was the only apprentice uh, in my third year yeah. for nine months, and, and we dismantled his blast cabinet uh, and, and had it hauled off. I'll be darned. Yeah. yeah so I never so saw it happen. Somehow his conscience uh, or his reverence for existing trees and... Yeah. I think his reverence. What do you think that was about? I mean, you're just dealing with the dead wood. Well, he might have been dealing with live wood. I mean, you're sandblasting the thing, but you could, yeah, you could fend it off if you're just dealing with the dead wood. Or if I had to hypothesize, I imagine it would come down to value. Because if you devalue the most expensive trees as a professional, that you make your living. Uh, designing and selling. So he's dealing with really valuable trees rather than creating them. Well, I think I mean, if you create more and more trees of the same character, the value mm -hmm. of each tree decre decreases. I don't know, but he did tell me, uh, he did tell me, he said, if there's nothing special between a domestic piece of material and a piece of Yamadori, then bonsai as a economy does not exist. And that, that wow. made sense to me. It's such a deep, I mean, it's almost like a confounding concept. I just kind of, hmm, But the way that you make your living in bonsai and the way that a Japanese professional makes their living are so different that they're almost not the same thing anymore, well, you yeah, know? Yeah. And we're blessed. Yeah. I do have to say, 
we're blessed, and you and I talked yeah. about this earlier, we're blessed by the fact that we do not have a singular source of economics that provides or funds our, our existence. You know, mm -hmm. the Kokfu model is what created the box of aesthetics that requires trees to now follow yeah. the same artistic, artistic yeah. yeah, artistic criteria and demands and expectations of the of tapering trunk, that, yeah. the scarless, no gin on, on broadleaf yeah, trees. Yeah. You know, that is all built by a convention from the Kokfu model. And from my perspective, post-World yeah. War II. Yeah. You know, where all of a sudden, like post-World War II, you have this massive external input into what was otherwise a closed what? country yeah. and a closed culture. And now there's a need to define what is this culture? What is this mm. undefined thing, this unknown entity in the, in the greater world now that it's open? And I think that that really forced Japanese bonsai, and I can't speak for any other endeavor, but when you look at the books and you see the change of aesthetics and, and, and the development of the economy, it forced Japanese bonsai to neck down that definition mm -hmm. to an understandable set yeah, of rules, yeah. you know? And I think that's honestly what we got. Yeah. You know, when we think about the orthodox form of left, right, back. Yeah. You know, yeah. satiata, kaishiata. Yeah. And then the and then the branch for depth that was a necking down. Yeah, you aren't kidding. So it, it's and that 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 to me, that's another aspect of you know, where your perspective exists because. You were really there for oh. the original. You were you were there when Her you were you were in Anaheim in '84, and you've got. I saw pictures of Mr. Kimura's trip because you guys were there together at the mm -hmm. same convention, and I saw what Benoki's backyard looked like and Harry Harrow's backyard looked yeah. like, and because Mr. Kimura had film shots of all of those gardens, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm yeah. thinking, gosh, it didn't look like that in 2000 when I was in college. They didn't look <laughs> like that. No, that was a different generation. They'd already kind of hit their peak. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it was different at that point. I remember uh, I had been selected to be in his workshop in L.A. I ran into him both times, San Francisco and L.A., and I had taken this tree down. They, they hadn't said that they were providing trees. Mm. And so I said, oh, I've got this great tree. I'm going to go down there and see what he thinks. Yeah. You know, and so... I am down there and I come walking in with this tree on a cart and and he just about walks out because suddenly here I am right. <laughs> with a tree to work on and he's got all these other ones that he's picked it out, these junipers probably from Harry, right? you know, these lesser trees and I just demurred. I said, well, there's alternatives. I, I thought I could have my own tree here at this right this thing and uh, I I did ask to talk with him a little bit about it and and I sh you know we looked at it and I said well my whole thing was whether I should split it and have make two trees out of it or do some kind of deal like that and yeah he thought it'd be better to keep it together and so everything was fine but it really created an uproar at the convention because, uh, and I've always done that. See, every yeah. place I go, somehow I seem to put foot in <laughs> mouth somebody or put foot in the air or <laughs> kick somebody in the ass or something. <laughs> and uh, the same thing happened at a convention in Minneapolis when uh, Nakamura, who was this uh -huh. visiting big, tall Japanese guy who was the 
the sensei for the for the Chicago group for years, and um, there was this great pine that Masi Mizumi uh, inherited from the, the the World Convention or something in 1910 in San Francisco, where the Japanese exhibit had this 200-year-old black pine bonsai that they'd brought over for it, and it had this big trunk like this, and yeah. he he wound up getting that tree and had it and it just had this shitty design to it. I mean, it's a wonderful tree. It's an amazing tree. But it just had yeah. these bottom branches that uh, that go across the trunk. Mm -hmm. And he took that tree to the convention that was in Minneapolis. And we all had trees there, but Nakamura saw that tree and said, I want to groom this for you at the convention to just kind of clean it up a little bit. And so it was a spontaneous kind of a open workshop for people. And so I'd been up earlier that day collecting larches up in the north end of, uh, up near Duluth or something. And came down and this thing was going on. And I look in the room and there's a seat right next to John Naka in the, in the front row. And so I just kind of, well, hey, I'll walk in here. And there was all over the floor with prunings off this tree where he'd been thinning it down. And it still had, see, it has twin trunks. Do you yeah. know the one I mean? I do. You know, yeah. the trunks may be this big and the main one here, and here's this lesser one. And then there's two branches off of this lesser one that come across the trunk, Yeah. right? Yeah. And so he's pruned all this other stuff off, and here's these goddamn branches crossing the line of the trunk, you know? And so I, you know, I'm sitting here looking at that saying, well, what's the deal? How come we're leaving those guys on there, which is kind of a repudiation of all of our notion the branches shouldn't cross the line of the trunk and here's two of them and right or something like that and so finally i you know i ask him about it and um and he says well it's the oldest branch on the tree i said well there's a, the, the next oldest one is right next to it going the right direction i mean it's only that far off on the trunk uh, why would you leave that and he said well you'll have to come to japan to my house and we'll talk about it well, that kind of got me going a little bit, you know. I thought, uh, you know, we're in here to learn <laughs> yeah. stuff. And yeah, I really sure. think a dialogue might help because I'm sure other people are thinking about it. And I even, John Nako is sitting there and he's just kind of smiling. And I I picked up his notepad and, and stepped up there and put the paper over the branch to show people how it looked without it. And, and Masi Mazuma, he jumps up thinking I'm going to break the branch off or something. So it creates this uproar. Oh, again. wow. And, you oh, know, yeah. Finally, I just go, okay, you know, so I demure and I go outside. And then these ladies come out. Oh, you just can't talk to these Japanese people that way. You know, it's just, I said, come on, get off of it. We're here to learn stuff. And sure. here we're, I'm trying to understand why you would leave those, even if it is one year older than the, the branch next to it that's in the right position, why would you leave this one that crosses the line of the trunk? And, yeah. You know, so yeah, no resolution. But isn't, but. but isn't this interesting, though, you know, because uh, I heard about that. Uh, I heard, heard about that scenario. That's, Was it basically like that? I it's mean, part, that yeah, I mean, it's part, yeah, you kind of heard about it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's part of bonsai lore. In North America, oh, yeah. it's certainly part of Dan I, Robinson I, I lore, know. right? You know, which is like, which is interesting because there's two sides to every story. Uh, and I think that there, there was this notion and has been a notion that 
you know, the reverence is to not ask questions. But then you look at the Japanese bonsai model in Japan as an apprentice, you don't challenge your master, yeah. you know, and your master doesn't explain to you why it's, it's a, it's a learn through observation mm-hmm. style of education. And so I started to recognize in Japan and Mr. Kimura was an exception because Mr. Kimura after his apprenticeship and before he became a professional, there was a five-year period of time where there was some conflict that existed that prevented him from being a bonsai professional. Wow. Uh, with the way that his apprenticeship ended and his relationship with his master, etc. And so he went to horticulture school at night. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where Mr. Kimura, the magician, was born was because he physiologically started to understand how to execute how trees these. Really yes, that's correct. He understood their vascular systems. He started understanding the nuances of controlling sugar and starch loads. Yeah. And and he really could tell you why. And that's what made him such a profound force in the West. Yeah. You know, whether he wanted well, to share that only, information yeah. or not, right? And yeah. but, you know, do did these other bonsai professionals from Japan actually know why mm-hmm. you know or did were they versed in the in the uh the skill set of explaining and I think that that well, was not an that, exercise yeah. muscle so Mr. Nakamura you know my experience with the Japanese bonsai approach is that there are a lot of there are a lot of moments where you know humility or restraint are shown based on that reverence for age or generational decisions that have been made that the individual would not override the group consensus that this branch has existed as mm-hmm. the oldest branch on the tree. And Mr. Nakamura is sitting there saying it's the oldest branch on the tree, but he can't, maybe couldn't at that time explain more than that, you know? Yeah. But as Westerners, we're saying, hey, we want to understand is, this I mean, thing. Yeah. I want to understand the decision that you're making, and he can't say, listen, 20 other hands, this tree's 200 years old. This is the 1915 Pan American tree yeah. that's been donated in Mossy's, you know, and I'm just touching yeah. this as one of 30 hands that has, you know, that's hard for both cultures to be able to understand each other enough to dialogue about. And I think that's where we start to see modern bonsai breaking through the cultural mm-hmm. barrier. Right. Yeah, I like to think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and well, I think finally you can. <laughs> there's an explanation. Yeah. There's a, a a greater understanding. There's a slight degree of explanation, but also, you know, Dan, it's imperative that you did that. I, that's also yeah. what I want to say is important because there is a spirit in that that you asking that question when others were wondering and abiding by the, an assumed uh, convention. Yeah. You were breaking through that ice. Mm-hmm. You were you were like that ship that crushes through, yeah. you know, the frozen ocean. Yeah. Trying to get breaker, some. Yeah, yeah, you 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 were you were that guy. Well, thank which you. <laughs> which I do have to say is not always the enviable position. Because that's a hard that's a hard, durable path. Well, to to piss off everybody <laughs> is the deal. Yeah, but you didn't intend to do that, or did no. you? No, you just wanted the I question wanted answered, right? You wanted to know. I come. What's the What's the rationale? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just a goddamn branch. Yeah, yeah, it'd yeah. And why really, can't we ask? It'd right? be real interesting as a as a gin, sure, crossing that thing as a remnant, sure, 
and beautify this thing instead of this clutter with this gob of foliage over here that comes from over here and yeah. crosses. Are you familiar with the tree? I don't know where. Oh, it's at the. Um, it's at Collection North. It? Yeah, it's at Collection yeah. North. I haven't seen it in a long time. I know, you know, Moss had it, and I know Boone had done some work prior to prior to Bonsai Today going out of business yeah. and moving to Europe to Bonsai Focus. I know that there was an article, and then, you know, I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. But uh, I don't think it's being groomed very well. I think it's too dense. But this is probably what he was thinning out anyhow. Yeah, I mean. maybe. I don't know. You know, I really don't know that. I would say if there's there's you know, two or three trees in all of North America that I would love to touch, that's that's number one or number two. Yeah. Yeah, because I just think that's a tree that, that has a true mixture of oh, these, yeah. you know, this... this it's got this... This... History in Japan came to the United States, history in the United States, multiple hands, several yeah. interpretations, undeniable provenance. Yeah. Like, that. that's the kind of piece of material yeah. that really... Well, it personifies the whole deal. I mean, this is that's a great tree. It's, it, it's a it, it's a living illustration of the uh, of the journey, yeah. of the journey that bonsai and has it's, taken it's, in its transition. We're, we're perpetuating it, taking good care of it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, for you know, for you, you're a tree maker, and that's a yeah. and that's a and that's a big that's a big deal because when uh, 2012 ABS in Denver, Colorado, and you reworked. Did you rework? No, you worked Athuya. You did the demonstration on the Alaskan, not Athuya, but Alaskan cedar, yeah. right? When did you rework the Hollywood juniper from the 84 Anaheim convention that you... Uh, that, was in, that was out in Palm Springs. And... Um, that was at a GSPF event. It had to event. be about uh, 2010 or... Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, was a big the, deal. That was a big deal. I, yeah, the Hollywood juniper from Melba Tucker's yard. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, it's in my book. Uh, yeah, no, I know, the, but all the time. But I remember. But I had just come back from Japan. I remember that being the focal point, and Ted and I had talked because I was I was yeah, working was, a little uh, bit with him. Yeah, he was heading towards the curatorship. Yep. There, yeah. There, away from Ben Oakey, would. Yeah. Is he still? Ted is still yeah. Ted's still curating. I think he's done an amazing job with the Huntington. Yeah. I just have so much respect for Ted. He's a big mentor of mine. He's done a lot for me in, yeah, in my career. Yeah, I, I really like him, and I was glad that he got the job because I never thought Ben Oakey was. Well, he was Ben Oakey, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. And he did stuff, but it, I'll never forget him working on that tree at the Golden Jubilee. Where he cut off all the branches on the back and said, "You want to put this in the back so you don't see the scars." I thought it was a pine of some sort. You mm -hmm. know that? Oh man, mm -hmm. that could be the best part of the tree—the mm -hmm. dead wood. Instead of cutting them all off and leaving around yeah. pruning scars running down the back. Yeah. Of course, that's when he had said that dead wood was inappropriate on deciduous trees too. And yeah, the Silver Jubilee—that was celebrating the California Bonsai Society, which was the one that preceded the Golden State, and um, and that was like an invitation-only club, right? Yeah, that had a certain yeah. level of. And so the guys got together and made the Golden State Federation, which opened up to everybody, and and disassembled quite a few of the um, the groups that were dominated by the Japanese only, and mm -hmm. and uh, that was all, I think, in the mid '70s, I guess. Ed. 
Ed Fisher? No, Fisher was the name of the guy who collected the ball cypress trees. This guy used to go across the Tamiami Trail, the ditches on either side of it, west of Miami, to collect ball cypress trees, and he used two big wash tubs and a pole to pull himself across the ditch. <laughs> and he just pulled the buckets up, would go out and just cut them off at ground level. Holy cow. Throw them across the, the ditch and then took them home and took, treated them like cuttings. And they all grew from them down there. I Unbelievable. Mean, yeah. Heat and humidity. But, yeah. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I bought a whole, my part, 50 or 60 of those things. And he sent them to me in a big refrigerator box. Yeah. Shipped, shipped the whole bunch of them here. I, st I don't have one of them today, but none of them liked it up here. And I still have had many bald cypress that I've collected that hadn't survived. And then I've got some that have. So yeah. It's hard to, I know you've got a cluster of them in that shed yeah. when I was down at your place. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, we, we are got. Are they all pond cypress or mine are all pond cypress? Some of them are ponds, there. some yeah. of them are bald. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, if they come out of New Orleans, then they're going to be bald cypress. Sure. You got to be northern Florida, and the great ones are down in the southern swamps down sure. there. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting deal. Ta talking with you helps, helps me understand, and I had, this, I had this realization when I was talking with David Easterbrook of just. How freaking hard it must have been to try and do bonsai in the 1950s when the information was not abundant. It didn't slow you down at all. No. It didn't. Well, I was just. You were in your shooting element. in the wind. You I were in your digging element. Digging up trees. And, you were loving it. Yeah. You were in it. Yeah. God. But I didn't have any aspirations to, for it to go anywhere. It was just my own curiosity just and energy. Just love. Man, look at this stuff. Yeah. And so I have you ever felt pressure? Have you ever felt pressure for it to go somewhere? I mean, you built a land in gardens like it. No, the only thing that I I had these delusions when I got into it, maybe before or when I came home from Korea, I'm not sure that this art form is just going to be fabulous and it's going to take over the world. Yeah. I mean, I was that effusive about it. Just. I didn't have anybody to tell because I'm living down here in the country. But like I said, I I live out in the woods, so I'm not a member of a club or yeah. anything else. And so I'm just talking to myself or Diane. But I, I, and I just felt that this was just a wonderful thing for people to be involved with and growing trees and training them into interesting forms and all this kind of stuff was, was going to sweep the world. And then, like I said, the cell phone in the early 80s just kind of killed it all off. Smashed your hopes and dreams. Yeah. <laughs> so then I came down to reality and said, well, okay, this is just a personal kind of a hobby and <laughs> I'll keep collecting me. this stuff and uh, yeah. doing what I do, but it's hard to compete with modern electronics and uh, that's more interesting. And so yeah. club membership dropped off in every field, you know, whether it's golfing or anything else. It just all kind of dried up because that's that machine is just magical yeah it takes you to the every place in the world instantly and yeah you don't have to do any work to get there and oh that's really nice yeah and then for me as kind of a production guy it's just like you you just have energy you want to do something yeah and um so it's that's the way it turned out we wound up doing stuff <laughs> but it's, what 
What happens to a Landon moving forward? Well, I don't know. My wife and I, you know, we conjure on how that's going to evolve. I, you know, one of my notions is, well, uh, the city probably take it over, the property. Mm -hmm. It's theirs. Mm -hmm. It's a park. Not the bonsai in it necessarily. That's kind of my stuff. Yeah. How the kids, none of them are really bonsai type people, but they all love it and enjoy my enthusiasm for it. It's a catching thing. Mm -hmm. And they're all part of it on some level. And yeah. so all of that really works. But um, it'd be nice to have it go on. I mean, it's a beautiful place and it all depends on how high the tide gets. Yeah. I mean, that may be the factor that changes everything for everybody. <laughs> the uncontrollable uh, factor. tomorrow. Yeah. Right? Suddenly, oh, best laid plans. Yeah. You know, we'll put it all on a barge and let it float up and down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then be, the experience yeah. changes entirely. Start injecting styrofoam into the ground <laughs> right. down there so that when the tide <laughs> comes up, it just kind of floats up and down. That's right. Tether it. And there you go. <laughs> those rocks. Well, it's not as big as it was. Well, it'll be back later yeah, this exactly. afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> You could build some sort of a dike around it or something, you know? Yeah. Bulkhead. Get, a, get away you know, with mirrors so you can still see the water. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of... Um, it's a complex thing, right? Because you, you built something grand. and it's, and it's, it's, it's really a wonderful place and people love it and they've never seen anything like it and that just reassures me that it's an unusual and great thing and worthy but how what to do with it and how to i'm really kind of up to it mm -hmm. still taking care of it and i get a few volunteers every once in a while I, i've just never really been good at all the organizational stuff i mean i marvel at all of this that you do i don't do this well, that's the that's whatever. the thing. That's where you know? don't give me too much credit. Well, you know, hey, look at this, <laughs> and uh, I I call somebody and how about helping me prune this pine on Saturday? You know, yeah. <laughs> so Kyle shows up on Saturday and Patty shows up on Sunday and uh -huh. sometimes maybe two other people come in and visit and then they they say yeah we'd like to volunteer and help you. Well, maybe those I said well call before you come make sure I'm here. And, sure. But nothing organized. Uh, the warehouse thing is much better organized, but they've got a staff. Yeah, sure. And, and the only staff I have is someone that I don't ever want to put the staff to, and that's Diane. Yeah. Because she does everything with that store and all the, all the machinations and all the communication with you, that's her. Yeah. She's, you know, I'm... Yeah, she's incredible. I'm, I'm busy pruning trees, and so yeah. I, don't, I don't know what's going on. What... What's the schedule? Sure. <laughs> so, but I'm real good w with taking care of my clients and the prunings and all of that kind of stuff. But um, long term, it's a little bit hard to know just how everything's going to play out. Um, yeah. I know there's great trees here that people would love to have on some level. And so maybe that is what happens long term. The land is there. What would you want to have happen with it all though? You know, I mean, like if you just had, and maybe you don't know, and if that's the case, totally fine. But like, you know, if you had your dream scenario, I'm assuming a land and lives on as opposed well, to it being ideally dissolved. Ideally that would right? happen. Yeah, sure. And so that, I'm glad you're here because this is our chance to talk about your role 
<laughs> and viral. And moving away from that goddamn place that you live in along that <laughs> ugly river that yeah. splits the land in half. How dare it? And you've just got little meager trees around you. I've I know. I know. Great, you know. I know. I can't even tell you how, how uh, you know, exciting and tempting that is. But let me just say, because I think we're about ready to get rain, thank you. Thank you for sitting down with us, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, we've known each other kind of vicariously and just, sure. oh, yeah, yeah, how are you doing? And, you know, I pick up a tree after you've gone to all the effort to dig it back and do all this sure. stuff. Sure, yeah. Well, God, great stuff. I got to go. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Great <laughs> to see is, you. All right. This is more fun. Yeah. I like it.